All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Gotta make a move to a town that's right for me. Town to keep me moving, keep me grooving with some energy. Well, I talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Talk about, talk about, talk about fishing. Gotta fish on, gotta fish on, gotta fish on. Hey, that's exactly what we do here on the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. We talk about, talk about, talk about fishing. So welcome to the Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor, and we have got a great podcast episode lined up for this week. We're going to kick things off with an insightful and fun conversation with James Hall, the Editor-in-Chief of Bassmaster Magazine at the Bass Angler Sportsman Society, or BASS, or Bass for those of you in the know. And after Mr. Hall gives us the insider scoop on all things BASS, We'll take a bourbon break, and I'll pour out my review of Ezra Brooks' Kentucky Straight Bourbon, and then I'll count down my top 10 vertical jigging lures. So yes, it's going to be a deep, deep show this week. So let's not waste any more time, because we gotta move on, gotta move on. Hey, welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get to casting. All right, my listening crew, I am excited to have James Hall, the editor-in-chief of Bassmaster Magazine at the Bass Angler Sportsman Society, or BASS as it's more commonly known, on the broadcast today. Hey, and just as a matter of background information for those of you in my listening crew who might have been living upstream and under a rock since 1967 when legend Ray Scott created the Bass Angler Sportsman Society, BASS has more than half a million members. It is geared toward bass fishermen, mainly in the U.S., but with members located worldwide. BASS publishes Bassmaster Magazine and other related publications and also produces the Bassmasters Weekly Television Program. BASS is famed for the sport fishing tournament trails it sponsors and for the championship event of its primary series, the Bassmaster Classic. Now, James Hall is one of those guys who probably knows more about the world of BASS and bass fishing than just about anyone else and probably has one of the keenest eyes for what's going on along the various tournament trails. And I'm hoping to get him to give us an insider's view of BASS tournament thinking. Now, James is by no means a latecomer to the fishing world. He grew up on the banks of Texas's Lake Arrowhead, where he learned to catch fish catch catfish and crappie from his grandfather. Of course, he developed a passion for bass fishing, which clearly fueled a lifetime obsession and opened the doors for a fantastic career. He's been with BASS now for more than 20 years and, as I said, is now editor-in-chief of Bassmaster Magazine. He's certainly not a bass-only kind of guy, though, having caught more than 200 different species of fish in 12 different countries. But despite that fantasy-level fishing life, he seems to always return to those opportunities to fish like he did when he was a kid in Texas, shooting crappy, crappy jigs under docks and trot lining for channel cats. 
Now, I count myself fortunate to get to work with James on the American Sport Fishing Association PR Media Committee, and I am thrilled to have him in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio this week, and I am just stoked about what's getting ready to unfold. James, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for being on the Rodcast. Wow, so you make me sound so good. I, I kind of <laughs> want to hear you say all that You're again. You're awesome, man. Yeah, no, what kind of man. intro would it be if I just sat here and dissed you the whole time? <laughs> here's a little chubby, here's a little chubby gray-haired guy uh, that likes to fish. That's kind of what I would have wrote about myself. All right, we can go with that. I can gladly edit the rest of that out, you know. <laughs> Trying to do some PR here for you, man. No, no, that was fantastic. I, and I, I appreciate you having me on the podcast. Well, I'm glad you're here. And, you know, I just mentioned a little bit about your childhood introduction to fishing in Texas. But I like to start the conversations on the Rodcast by asking about those origin stories. So could you tell us a bit more about how you got introduced to fishing, how you developed the passion for it, and how you managed to turn that passion into an incredible career? Yeah, that well, I mean, it, the, it's kind of basic, really. I mean, when I was a kid growing up in uh, in North Texas, you know, we didn't have a lot. So we, we weren't fishing for fun uh, at the time. We were fishing for food. We were we were the kind of the redneck sustenance guys, you know, and my grandfather was, he was very good at it, at catching food to eat. And I don't know if you've ever seen Lake Airhead, but it looks a whole lot like a big mud puddle, you know, red clay, uh, red river kind of uh, feel and vibe to it. So bass fishing was, they were there, um, but mainly uh, we caught catfish uh, and crappie. And then my, my grandfather was a, um, uh, old oil guy. I mean, I, we'd go with him as kids and drive around in his old rickety truck and he would check uh, oil lines and uh, the amount of uh, petrol and tanks. And then, uh, and you know, North Texas, it'd be spattered with what we call tanks. You know, some you know people elsewhere call them ponds, but um, they were littered with uh, bluegill. So he would bring worms uh, to fish the bluegill. Again, not for fun, but for bait for our trot line. So my brother and I, who was two years older than me, uh, that was, we would go out, we would, we spend all day helping them do that oil stuff just for that 30 minutes before we went home. So we could, we could go fishing for those bluegill and we'd get, you know, get back to the lake and uh, we'd get out on this John boat and we'd, we'd paddle out and bait the trot line. And it was just like on pins and needles until the next morning before we went out. So we'd go run that thing and see those, you know, that tug and, and, it, you know, that was uh, big flatheads up there, too. I think my grandfather's biggest flathead was almost 100 pounds. Wow. Certainly bigger than me as a child and, um, and a lot of channel cat. And then and, uh, and then we'd sink, we sink uh, brush piles by our dock uh, to catch crappie uh, while we were waiting on the catfish to bite. So that's what really got me uh, enthusiastic about it. We just loved the expectation of the next bite. We love the thrill of reeling in a fish, no matter how uh, ugly it was. Uh, and then, of course, my grandmother was a world champion at frying catfish. So that was always, you know, the icing on that proverbial cake. That's funny because I actually have in my notes, one of the things I wanted to ask you later in the conversation was, all right, give me the secret for the best frying of a catfish. So uh, we may come back around to fried catfish in a minute. Oh, good, 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 good. So, you know, uh, as you know you, so, go ahead. I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead. 
No, you go. Well, I was going to say the the first time I remember it vividly. We were my grandfather thought bass were trash fish, and I always found that curious because you know to me as a kid not knowing any better, I thought well they don't look like trash. They look kind of cool, really. So I remember when one of those crappie fishing trips, uh, we know we live minnows and and uh, bobbers and whatnot. I caught. The first largemouth I ever remember seeing is I had to, to me, it looked like it was about eight pounds, but uh, if I'm to be honest, it's, it was probably more like two pounds, and he was going to throw it back in in the lake, calling it trash. I said, no, no. So <laughs> I got, he let, he just tied a rope on it, and I drugged that poor fish around probably, you know, I was probably six or seven, I don't know, uh, drugged that fish around on that rope and until it could, uh, uh, you know, be drugged no more. And then finally hung it up on on the post, and it sat there and dried out. You know, birds ate it at some point, but I remember that dried bass head on that dock. Uh, that they, they had to left up there for three or four years because I just wouldn't let them take it down. <laughs> that funny. was my first bass fish bass fishing experience. Like a warning to all the other bass in the pond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, poor thing. I feel terrible about it now. James fishes here. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, as you were talking about that, and I was thinking about how important those kinds of introductions to fishing are for so many kids, um, and you mentioned worms for bluegills. I remember you made a video, if I'm remembering correctly, with your son, Austin, about how to catch your first fish with live worms. And now, obviously, that's not the first fish for Austin. You know, he's uh, what he's, he's a go outside ambassador. I mean, he's pretty invested in fishing already. But that video seems kind of important. It's a way of teaching new anglers some of the basics. And that makes me want to ask you two questions to really get us rolling today. The first is the obvious question. How important it has it been to you and your family to introduce Austin, and I don't know if you have other kids, uh, to fishing just as you were introduced to the sport? Oh, man, it is uh, it is of the utmost importance to me, you know, because I, I've had some of my most cherished days on the water fishing with family and friends and meeting new friends uh so so it was imperative for me to get austin involved um and and involved early i mean when he was he couldn't have been more than he was still wearing diapers and he was sitting on the front of a kayak with me now uh, and i'd be fishing and he'd be you know uh playing with something uh, worms or something until i caught a fish and then he would pick up a rod and then we would go and uh, try to teach him how to cast and things of that nature. But for, you know, for me, it was almost selfish because that gave me so, I have so many wonderful days on the water, uh, with him. And, you know, otherwise had, had, had we not been fishing, I don't know if we would have been spending that time together. So for me, it was, um, it was kind of selfish, but for Austin, as I've seen him grow up and see his passion for the outdoors and, his willingness to want to go outside and fish or hike or deer hunt or whatever it is we've done together uh, instead of some of the other things he could be doing uh, that might mush his brain, you know, like video game, not that all video games are bad, but you know, you spend a lot of time in front. It's hard to get away from a screen these days. Right. So I think, yeah, it, the, the, the more you can get um, young people involved in something that is away from a screen I think the better, you know, their life experiences are going to be. So I, um, I, I found it very important. You know, I was, he got on his, he was on this high school fishing team, uh, which I was the coach of for the four years that he did that. Uh, he made great friends there. He got to skip school to go practice fishing. So, I mean, 
Some of us just skip school to fish anyway. He would say that it was a positive experience as well. That's fantastic. So the second part of that, though, is that through your work with BASS and also what you do with American Sport Fishing Association, and through that, you and I have been part of a larger group of folks in the industry who've been looking closely at the increase in numbers of new anglers over the years, particularly over these last few years with the massive increase of new anglers that occurred during the COVID years. And that video that you did with Austin is just one of a lot of videos, articles, and other resources that content producers like yourself have started making in order to provide resources for new anglers, particularly since we're seeing a lot of new anglers come into the sport without having had the kinds of childhood introductions to fishing in the ways that you and I did as a kid. Could you talk about why the industry is and why it needs to make sure videos like your worm video are available to new anglers? Yeah, we have, you know, um, you know, back when you and I were young there, the, the way we learned was either we had to have somebody that already knew how to do us, how to do it, tell us how to do it and, and teach us, or we'd pick up a magazine like Bassmaster or In Fisherman or one of those magazines that came out once a month. And that was your, you know, your time to learn and then go figure it out on your own. If you kind of had that kind of passion to do that. Uh, whereas now, Oh my God, you can learn everything online. So if you don't have, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've learned how to replace a toilet by watching YouTube and I never would have figured me as a plumber. So, uh, and, and I would have never tried. Uh, so, um, you know, if you have that resource online, if you have content that has taken, um, you know, kids or, or new parents that want to get their kids involved in this and they haven't done it, it teaches them, you know, in a very easy step-by-step and fun way to do something. I think you must take that opportunity to, to do that. Uh, Cause that is pretty much, I mean, that's, that's, unless you have a kid is lucky enough to know someone that goes fishing often and is willing to take them, that's going to be their, probably their first experience uh, in learning how to fish is going to be a video. And hopefully that video will inspire them to get out there and try it on their own. And maybe the next video you and Austin need to do is the video on teaching kids how to skip school to go fishing. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be easy. I got I was a master of that back in the day. Yeah, you and me both. All right, so let's um, let's shift this a little bit and focus a little bit on BASS for a few minutes. Now I have to ask, and admittedly, admittedly, this is out of my own curiosity more than anything. And if I have it right in my history. You came on as editor-in-chief of Bassmaster after Dave Preck retired in 2019, and Dave had taken over from Bob Cobb. Now, I know that until he retired, Dave held the honor of being the longest-tenured employee of BASS and had been editor of Bassmaster for 19 years and then editor-in-chief for 16 more years. Now, I didn't know Bob, but I know Dave, and man, those are some pretty big shoes to fill at Bassmaster. Could you talk a little bit what it, about what it's been like to move into the Bassmaster Editor-in-Chief role following Dave? I mean, that's got to be like trying to take up coaching after Steve Spurrier or Coach K or Dean Smith or something. Yeah, yeah. well, so um, the way that hierarchy worked is I actually stepped into his shoes and, uh, and took over the day-to-day operations of Bassmaster in, in 2006. Six or whenever I became editor, so I think that was no 2003, 
And so he remained editor-in-chief, um, I guess, that entire time. But, but as, and so as it went from me becoming, uh, going from editor to editor-in-chief, there was no difference. Uh, I was doing the exact same thing. But I will say, back in 2003, when I um, kind of took over the day-to-day of Bassmaster from, from Dave Precht, uh, who was you know, the, just the ultimate, uh, professional and, uh, and, you know, the editing world, especially the outdoor world, it was a, it was, it was intimidating. And, um, the, the only saving grace is that he was just right down the hall for me. If I ever had any questions, uh, or, you know, <laughs> made a wrong move, he certainly let me know. Um, but yeah, it was intimidating knowing that I was following in the footsteps of Dave who, you know, who was, his, whose predecessor was Bob Cobb, the original original editor of the publication. So it was uh, the shoes to fill or um, were enormous, and I will say that my feet grew over time <laughs> as, as I took the reins uh, eventually. And uh, so when he moved, you know, whenever he retired in 2019, it was uh, not so much a professional discomfort as it was a personal one because Dave became. And I and I, I believe today he's 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 a intense father figure for me. Uh, I love him dearly, and um, you know I miss seeing him every day. Uh, but, but the things that I learned from him over the years were invaluable to me uh, in my profession. Yeah, I, I, he was always very supportive of of what I was doing, and I've always been grateful for him. Um, so last year, Bruce Aiken retired after a decade at the helm of BASS. And I've got a lot of respect for Bruce. He's someone I consider a friend. And what he accomplished in his time at CEO as CEO of BASS was pretty remarkable, ranging from that new multi-year television deal with Fox Sports, which ensured live broadcast coverage for every elite series event and the Bassmaster Classic. And that's for the first time in history, those guarantees plus the introduction of the junior, the high school, the kayak tournament trails. And he also revived the Redfish Cup Championship. But rather than focus on Bruce, though, I want to ask you about these expansions in BASS, the organization, and how the addition, particularly the focus, and you mentioned this before a little bit, particularly the focus on younger anglers in tournament environments has been of benefit, not just to BASS, but to the entire enterprise of bass fishing's longevity. Yeah, well, that's a that's a great question. Now, I will say that um, you know I've worked for a lot of CEOs, including Helen Severe, uh, and uh, in my tenure here, Bruce Aiken has made uh, left the biggest footprint. I mean, he was an amazing CEO, an amazing person to work for, and and um, and and really catapulted Bass from you know where we were in the bit <laughs> some dire straits after the ESPN. Uh, someone called it a debacle. Uh, and he um, made us not only you know healthy, but he made us extremely successful and prosperous and vi- and, and, and and visionary. So all the kudos in the world to Bruce Aiken. Uh, and he and he was very passionate about um, the youth, you know, uh, really spurring youth to get involved in the sport. And <clears throat> in his tenure, that happened. I mean, that the explosion. I think a lot of the growth that we have seen as um, on the youth side has been through the um the focus on high school bass fishing um college bass fishing had been around a little a little bit but it wasn't until we really got the high school programs um running and gunning that the college was then elevated 
And then the then you had the kids below them get interested. So they that high school void that existed um, once it was filled, you saw the flowers above them blossom and then the roots beneath them start to grow. So um, and, and I, as a as a coach in the high school realm, um, what I what I noticed and I wrote a column about this many years ago when, whenever I was doing this um, is that I would meet the boat captains from these high school kids and they were. Some were grandfathers, some were fathers, some were uncles, but a lot of them had just lost the passion for bass fishing. And so the so whenever they started taking these kids out again, they got really involved in it again. And like one of the grandfathers started fishing tournaments on his own afterwards. So what we saw with this with this like infusion of youth and, and excitement in that in that, you know, ninth to twelfth grade area of kids wanting to go fish is that it it trick their passion trickled up into older people, uh, the ones that were taking them out. And it's not, wasn't just a handful. You're talking about tens of thousands of kids out there competing at the high school level, getting older people excited about it as well. So, um, so, so that was, you know, a, a imperative that I'm glad we're able to, you know, to juice up on that high school level. I think you're seeing junior high uh, clubs really kicking off now. And the growth of high school fishing has not subsided. It, it continues to grow every year. And I think, you know, like kids like my child who realize they could get a free day off school to go fishing. And once, once that gets out there, there's going to be even more kids and excited about joining the teams. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you and I were just at the ASA Summit. And I think that that conversation about high school angling has just really elevated across the industry and lots of people talking about how to promote high school fishing in particular. Um, I've been talking to a lot of collegiate teams lately also about, you know, how to, how do collegiate teams move through uh, the, the various uh, tournament circuits and things like that too. So I think it's an important and growing area and I'd love to see you know, what BAS has, S has been doing with all of this. So one of the things that happened to BASS over the last few years has been just a fantastic increase in BASS memberships. The numbers of viewers for BASS tournaments and events, the readership of your publications, especially on Bassmaster.com and also on Bassmaster social media channels. How has that increase in readers and viewers affected your mission as editor-in-chief? And how do you think that increase has impacted the overall mission of BASS? Well, the, the increases, um, and I'll, I'll speak specifically to um, the last few years, because the last couple of years we with uh, COVID and the intense number, I don't know what the final number was, but I think we got um, last I heard is maybe 5 million additional license sales. Um, that's a lot of people, you know, because we always talk about wanting to get more people involved in fishing because more people that support uh, fishing that buy licenses, all that money is put back into the resource and everything gets better for everybody. So, um, so our goal has been to try to, to, uh, maintain these people who might have tried fishing for the first time or the first time in a long time, you know, over the last couple of years, uh, with the pandemic, We're, we want to wrap our arms around them, give them a big hug and say, look, what can we do to help support you, uh, to continue to go fishing? And so um, it's been a huge priority of ours, as I think it probably has been for every outdoor manufacturer out there, 
Um, but but our our focus is on content because if we can if those people can find us and then they can find some content that helps them be a little bit more successful on the water, then I think they're more likely to do it again. Uh, so we've added more basic content uh, to both the publications and to the to Bassmaster.com. And then we created this, uh, the GoOutside.com. Um, that's kind of an initiative that not only speaks to fishermen, but also if you like to hike or, or cook outside or camp or uh, kayak, it has a more general content uh, that we're hoping helps some of these new people uh, want to come back and visit the site and learn more about, about being out of doors. And so that's kind of been our focus is to just get as much content out there that um, that will assist these new people coming in um, and help them maintain their passion for being outdoors. That's fantastic. You know, as we're talking about new anglers and retaining new anglers and what BASS has been doing to encourage new anglers, I think there's also something very valuable too in thinking about BASS's legends and the ways in which over the last 55 years, BASS has given us a kind of celebrity and a cult of personality around top tier tournament anglers. You know, I'm thinking of course about all those great anglers like Bill Dance, Roland Martin, Jimmy Houston, Larry Nixon, Hank Parker, Guido Hibden, Gary Klein, Mike Iaconelli, Kevin Van Dam, And I can go on and on here, you know, that sort of whose tournament, you know, the, the, the tournament wins list and the angler of the year awards, all of that really helped to make not just individual anglers into celebrities, but it really made BASS a kind of iconic proving ground. Could you talk about how that heritage drives what BASS does? You know, and that to me, I have to say that question pops up given the recent passing of Ray Scott and really thinking about that history too. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's it is actually part of our mission statement is that we um, we are extremely proud of our past. We're extremely proud of, uh, of what Ray Scott accomplished in a very, very short amount of time. Um, and then, you know, we at Bass, we consider ourselves the keeper of the culture of the sport. And so in doing in, in, in saying that, um, you know, the history is valuable. Uh, these legends that you speak of. And by the way, your Bill Dance episode is freaking amazing. Oh, thanks, I can listen, man. To, that I guy, I can listen to that guy talk for years. Oh, I don't even have to do an interview. I just have to say, go, Bill, and he will. It's like the, <laughs> the second or third time I've interviewed him, and you don't have to ask any questions. You just have to say, tell me something, and he will, he'll go. <laughs> yeah. uh, but like Bill and Roland and Hank Parker, all these guys – um, have incredibly valuable lessons to teach the kids of today. And so we, we keep that um, in the back of our minds with every issue that goes out in Bassmaster Magazine. Every time we plan content, we, we want to make sure that not only are we teaching people the newest techniques, uh, you know, the newest trends, but we want to make sure that they remember where we came from because, you know, forward-facing sonar uh, is great. Um, but if you don't know how to, you know, identify a, a point, it doesn't help all that much at all. So, and you talk to Bill Dance about how he can understand what's under the water by looking at what's, you know, on land, then, you, you know, all these things are important. And not only that, but the heritage um, uh, that Ray Scott left us, you know, he, he fought for Clean Water, Clean Water Act, the PEGA polluter program. You know, he left us catch and release, you know, before... Um, 
before Ray came along, they killed, even when, you know, in the early days, he killed every bass that, uh, that was caught on the tournament trail. And now that is an, an extreme part of the culture of being a bass fisherman is that you release that fish to be caught again. Uh, so all of those things, all of the, all those are drivers for us at Bass to not only make sure that we keep our eye on the ball um, as it relates to being responsible and ethical and making sure that, you know, the decisions we make now uh, are make, you know, are positive results in the future. That's important. Um, but also to make sure that those guys get their just dues because with, without some of those, um, without legendary anglers um, doing what they did, making the sacrifices that they made back in the day, we no telling where we'd be right now. Yeah, you know, it seems to me that that's just an incredibly insightful and interesting way to think about how BASS takes that legendary status, takes those those celebrities, and pairs it up with that agenda of encouraging new anglers to the sport. You know, I'm thinking specifically about the role that BASS's uh, nation tournaments play in relation to the Bassmaster College Series or the Bassmaster Opens and then to the Bassmaster Classic and that sort of introduction of those tournaments for that younger generation that are operating in that shadow of that legend. Could you talk about the strategies and have any, having these various tournaments for different tiers of anglers as a way to promote tournament angling? Yeah, yeah. You know, the Bass, the bass Nation is lifeblood of BASS and it always has been. I mean, these are guys, you know, weekend warriors who go out and want to fish against their buddies on the weekends, but that's not all they do. Uh, they also um, clean the lakes. They also promote um, access uh, for the fisheries. They'll raise money for habitat in their local lakes. And, that, and, the, and there's tens of thousands of these guys out there all across the United States that are doing very, very selfless acts um of you know conservation and promotion uh just because they love it just because they want to be a part of, of the fraternity that gives back uh and so having these these smaller tournaments a it gives the the average guy a way to you know be competitive you know and we all love to compete you know at least most of us do on some level i suck at it but yeah, I was going to um, ask you about that, by the way, you know, uh, in fact, I'm looking at my notes right here and I wanted to ask you, what is it, you know, first of all, that, you know, fishing's got a reputation as being an activity of solitude and contemplation, but anybody who's ever tournament fish knows that solitude and contemplation is not how you describe <laughs> tournament fishing. So no, oh, no. why do it's we compete? Stress <laughs> and, and irritation at oneself and hatred of fish on occasion. Uh, but it's that man, is, but it is exciting. All right. So you brought it up. Okay. According to the Bassmaster webpage, you've ever completely only completed one Bassmaster tournament, total weight of 31 pounds, 13 ounces log, no top 10 finishes, no top 20, no top 30 finishes. And you haven't earned a dime as a Bassmaster tournament angler. So first of all, is that correct? <laughs> no, no, actually I, uh, I've never competed in a BASS tournament because when I came to work for the company in 1999 and, um, and I had only fished local club tournaments up until then. And then once I became an employee, I couldn't fish right. BASS tournaments anymore. So 
But I will say this, the James Hall that you're talking about caught more fish than I would have in that uh, tournament <laughs> gotcha. and won an equal amount of money. That's the second time I've run into that where there's a double up on names in BASS tournament fishing. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that whole idea that we take this thing and we make it competitive and you know just get that adrenaline going, that's that's pretty pretty intense. So well, I mean, that look, mind, when, I, it's, when I'm just when I'm fun fishing, I don't even have to be in a in a tournament. I'm fun fishing. You know, who catches the first fish? All right, right. well, you only oh, yeah. beer. Biggest fish, beer. You know, most it's all there's. It's always it always kind of ends up being competitive. You know, no matter <laughs> no matter oh, why you're out there. No doubt, no doubt. I've got little personal tournaments with buddies that we run all year long. Absolutely. Right. So, but from your perspective of having watched and analyzed so many tournaments throughout your career, what advice would you give to those young anglers who want to move into tournament bass fishing? Oh man, the, the, the best advice, and I think you can ask any elite series pro out there, the best advice is to spend as much time on the water as you possibly can. There is no substitute for being on the water period. Um, you know, secondly, if you're, if you're wanting to be a successful tournament fisherman, you should also try fish, uh, multiple types of bodies of water because you can come down here and fish Logan Martin, uh, near me, but then go up to, um, you know, down to Okeechobee and it, it, it's a different world fish, same, you know, they're bass, but they sure act differently. Same with smallmouth, spotted bass, you know, largemouth in different areas of the country. So there's no um, replacing just time, time, time on the water. Uh, and then secondly, I would I would talk to, and I, I, here's another really good one, is fish um, as a co-angler in, in as many tournaments as you can if you want to be a tournament fisherman. Because having, uh, being able to watch decisions being made on the fly and on the water with different anglers is extremely valuable. You know, we have a Marshall program for our elite series where the guy doesn't get to fish at all. He just has to sit in the boat and make sure that no funny business goes on. Uh, and those guys, they sign up for multiple, you know, after you get one and, and you're paired with one of these guys and you see just how good they are at everything, then you want to do it again. Because so, this, the next guy you're going to be with is really, really good at a whole bunch of different things. So, you know, sitting in the back of the boat um, and as a co-angler, I think is a really uh, valuable uh, practice as well. Great advice. I probably shouldn't say it, but maybe uh, that whole Marshall concept ought to be taken up in the walleye world as well these days, but uh, <laughs> treading into dangerous territory there. So, uh, Woo! yeah, we're not going to go there, but I do like I, a walleye fillet. You know, you, you said that about, you know, fishing other waters. I've got a, a very dear friend, a buddy of mine, who's had an amazing music career. He's, you know, he actually did the music for the, for the Rodcast, but, uh, he taught me early on, he said, you know, you can play your home bar all you want and you'll have the same people show up, the same fans, they'll always applaud you, but you'll never know you're good until you take it out on the road. And so his motto is take it on the road. And uh, <laughs> I think that applies here as well. You know, hit, hit those other waters and learn because a lot of, I mean, let's face it, in a lot of these tournaments, a lot of times you're showing up and you get a couple of days pre-fishing, and then you go right into the tournament, you don't have time to learn the water in the ways that you do your home water. And you're, you're really having to go with what information you have and what you can transfer from one site to another. So, you know, that idea of just being on different water all the time is a great learning experience. Yeah, 100%. All right, so one last BASS-related question. 
Talk to me about BASS's move into redfish tournaments and the move into saltwater fishing, and how has that impacted BASS's approach to things? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. We, um, you know, first of all, I love to redfish. Uh, red, we have, I have redfish from we Texas. A, really, we, really, <laughs> Texas guy likes a redfish. I would have never guessed. Yeah, well, I mean, but honestly, I, 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 I've redfished the most in uh, Venice, Louisiana, and yeah. I just fell in love because you know you're fishing with bass gear, bass lures, and you have this 20 pound tank kit. They're just, there's just something. They're just something about it that's fantastic. But. I digress. We got into the redfish thing because really good partners uh, with Yamaha uh, and Yamaha right waters. And, you know, they do amazing things in the, in their space for conservation. And they're just, a, they, they just give a lot back. And so they approached us with the, with the idea to, to do this redfish cup where we pair uh, an elite series pro with the redfish guy. And it, um, you know, it just kind of made sense because a, they're a great partner. B, uh, there's not a bass fisherman I've ever met that doesn't love uh, to catch redfish uh, if they've done it. And then, you know, see it make great content because it it kind of shows, um, you know, that bass anglers. And this is true. I found this to be true on a lot of saltwater um, experiences I've had. That you, um, if a guy grows up bass fishing, he can almost do, you know, except for the the deep sea stuff, big stuff. He's really he's really good at, at catching just about anything. Um, and so, you know, that you can see that play out with the redfish. Some of those guys have never caught a redfish before, but they could read the water and they could pattern fish. And so it's kind of cool to see um, knowledge from fishing for one species transfer to another species. And our hopes uh, is that it would give confidence for them to go give it a try. And so, and I think that has, um, has happened, first of all. Second of all, the content created, I, I couldn't stop watching that Redfish Cup. It was really good, um, really good content. And we had a lot, uh, you know, great audience for it. So it seems like it was well-received, uh, even on the bass side. So, um, you know, it was just one of those things that we thought we'd give a go and it's uh, turned out really, really um, good for us. And I think it was really great for Yamaha and the other partners uh, that jumped in there. And I, I don't see us not doing it anytime soon. Any discussion of other saltwater expansion for BASS? Now, you know, um, our sister company, JM Associates, um, they're producing, um, golly, it's going to kill me. I can't remember the name of it, but the saltwater championship, uh, then built big billfish uh, tournament. So, I mean, we have our um, uh, foot in the door with another, you know, with that big saltwater, those big boats and the big fish and the million dollar whatever. Um, but it's not something that probably BASS will be a part of because it's so difficult. I mean, the average guy, a bass boat guy can run down to Venice and go catch redfish and trout and um, flounder, but he's not going to go catch a marlin, right, right. you know, out of his uh, skeeter. So, uh, I doubt that that we will be putting our stamp on anything beyond uh, redfish at the moment. Well, and that makes sense too, because depending on where you are, redfish are known as you know channel bass or red bass. I mean, my grandfather always called them red bass, so it's you know still bass in a way. So yeah. All right, so let's let's move away from BASS specifically, and let me get some pro tip info from you for my listening crew. And let me start with something that we started off talking about in the intro and your passion for pitching crappie jigs under docks for panfish. What is it about crappie and other panfish that's so captivating for you? Uh, their abundance 
and their the ease with which you can catch them. That's why we I always, if I have a new kid that I'm taking fishing, the first thing I'll do is bluegill. Or if I know um, a brush pile is loaded with crappie, then we'll just go drop minnows on that. It's just so easy and uh, and so fun and so productive because typically. When you take someone new, especially out, you don't want to, you don't want to get skunked. You want them to have a really fun uh, experience and catching fish is a big part of that. So that's what I think is so amazing about panfish is that there is their abundance, their willingness to participate in your effort. And then, you know, and for their size, they pull. Oh, absolutely. All right. So we, we hinted at it before, so, but I got to ask, cause this is something my buddies always ask. It's almost a running joke. So you prefer fried crappie or broiled crappie? Oh, fried. <laughs> the hell, who, who the hell likes broiled crappie? I don't know. It's just a running joke a bunch of my anymore. buddies have. So, all right. Talk to me about trot lining then. Yeah, trot lining. I actually still do it on occasion. Um, uh, I, you know, that's what I grew up uh, doing. And there's there's something just wonderful um, about, A, I love to eat catfish. And by the way, the pro tip on, on frying catfish. That's my next question. It, You're getting there. Uh, all right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and answer it yeah, because this definitely. is important is that you have to marinate it in picante sauce. And if you really like uh, a spicy cat, fried catfish, then go ahead and use Tabasco. Or I like Texas peach personally. Uh, but that gives that underlying. That's how you, you, you get the breadcrumbs or your whatever your favorite fish mix. I think I use um, what is it? Zatarans. 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 Yeah, I'm yeah. A, I just I go with just plain cornmeal. But yeah. Yeah. Well, cornmeal cornmeal is just fine. It, you know, you got to add some salt and pepper to it, but then, but then if you, if, if, if you marinate that stuff just for about an hour longer, you marinate it, the hotter it's going to be, but either picante sauce, if you're on the mild or, or, you know, Texas pizza, if you want a little spicier, um, before you bread it. Anyway, I digress. Uh, you have, um, trot lining is, is it just, man, for me, it just takes me back to being with my grandfather in that John boat. Um, I know that it was some of the most, <laughs> you know, um, memorable days I'll ever have because you get, you get out there and you could either have, you know, we'd catch gar and we'd catch turtles, we'd catch small channel cats, but every now and again, you'd have that 20 to 50 pound flathead on there that you just don't know how you're going to get it in the boat. You're like Jonah, you know, <laughs> yeah, so what, what, this ain't going to eat me had I gone swimming. So, um, so I love it, man. And, and it's just an effective way to get some really great food for the table. Yeah, absolutely. My mom is a big fan of fried catfish. So that's always the conversation of who's getting the catfish. All right. So we've been talking about the fishing stuff, but I know from previous conversations and from something you hinted at before, and given that usually following the interview is the bourbon break, I know you've got some thoughts on bourbon. So let me have the James Hall bourbon manifesto. Well, first of all, Sid, I am super pissed at how expensive it has become. <laughs> Fair enough. What has happened? What has happened? Oh, you know, get something gets trendy and they just and it gets too expensive to. Well, you know who to blame it. for that, right? Who am I, who should I blame? You should blame Woodford. As great as Woodford is, they were the first ones to set their prices up in that fifty bot fifty dollar a bottle range to create that sort of trendiness and the higher end idea of bourbon. And everybody just followed suit from there on. But uh, yeah, they were really the first ones to do that. 
Yeah, I, w- I was going to uh, blame Pappies or someone over at Buffalo <laughs> Trace or Pappy Gate or whatever. No, because but, but even those guys are way is. beyond that. I mean, they're way beyond the $50 for most of the Pappy or the, the oh. uh, you know, the George Stag coming out of Buffalo Trace or the Blantons or things like that. So. Yeah, it's and it's impossible to find. It'd be one thing to have to pay a lot for it, but to not be able to find it and then then have to pay a lot for it is super frustrating. So I, I have found, you know, we we did the Kentucky Bourbon tour not long ago. My wife gave me that as my fiftieth birthday present, and we um <clears throat> we coming back. What I realized and and is that the story behind the bourbon had become more important than the bourbon to me. And so I have now been on a um, uh, on like this this path to quit looking at the story and start drinking the juice and figure out what actually tastes best <laughs> to me. And what I found out is that I'm really good with a thirty five dollar bourbon. I W Harper uh, yeah, won that so. category for me. I don't know if you've had it. Yeah, yet, absolutely. It, yeah. Have you had Have you had the I W Harper fifteen? No, I have not. That's one that's a little bit harder to find and more than I want to spend, but it is fantastic. Yeah, see, I'm hearing you criticize the bourbon break because that's mostly story. You know, right after you and I get through, <laughs> I'm going to go into the bourbon break and I'm going to tell stories about where these bourbons came from. And then I'm going to spend two minutes going, and this is what yes. it tastes like. <laughs> it's totally your fault. I'm blaming you. Uh, you know what? If I had that kind of power in the bourbon world, I'd, I'd take credit for that. But given... Given that I think my mom listens to the bourbon breaks and that's about it, I don't know. So, no, the bur- bourbon breaks are, are one of my favorite parts of your podcast. So, yeah. so please keep and the stories are fantastic. Well, thank you, thank you, and that in fact is how I got to know Bruce Aiken and Dave Practice. You know, through all the guys at ICAST and ASA, we do our cigar bourbon nights every time we all get together, and uh, so yeah, I mean, I, bourbon for me is also a big thing about the camaraderie of all this. These folks, so. Yeah, All right. yeah, absolutely. That's a huge part of it. But um, but anyway, if you see and the IW Harper with the Chardonnay finish, it's not too bad either. All right, I'm gonna check it out. I may run up to the liquor store right after we get done and grab a bottle then. So all right, so I pointed out in the introduction to this conversation that you've caught more than 200 different species of fish in 12 different countries, which is not only a fantastic accomplishment, but it's also a great segue into our traditional wrap-up question. And that is, what is the James Hall grail fish, that bucket list fish that's still out there calling to you? Oh, man. That is really difficult for me to answer um i golly all right well i'll I'll, here's here's one that i'm dying to catch i don't know just but one so it's kind of like this would be like a goliath grouper for me but i would i would like to i would like to catch one of those giant freaking sturgeons i have i've I've hooked the small one on a tube before but i don't think that counts i don't want i want one of those 12 footers that jumps up and makes you pee your pants that's that would be an amazing thing, uh, I think, um, uh, at least on the freshwater side. You know, on the saltwater side, I'm embarrassed to say I've, uh, I have never, I've hooked one, but I've not landed a sailfish, and that bothers me a little bit. So that's that's high high on my list as well. Um, but man, gr- yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'd probably need a week to prepare for a solid <laughs> answer to that question. That's a no, those are great grail fish. I, I don't know if you know that uh, Glenn Hughes, Gary Jennings, uh, me, and some of the others after Summit in uh, Washington that year, we went sturgeon fishing. 
got some nice fish, but no big 12 footer. Um, we've got them here in the river in the Swanee river. They jump and, uh, they, uh, they're very dangerous because they jump and inevitably somebody once a year gets hit in a boat by them, but we're not allowed to fish for them. That's what I was thinking that, yeah, y'all can't, they're still protected. They're protected. They're endangered here, but you know, the Northeast, that's the place to go. Columbia river. You'll, you'll get your big boy up there. Yeah. And I went up there I, that same time you're talking about, I, I fished with John Mazurkowitz for smallmouth. Yeah. And uh, although I don't think we caught a smallmouth, I think we we did hook one a little baby sturgeon on the tube. <laughs> so yeah, I got we went out question. with we went out with Dave Ng and just targeted sturgeon, and we did pretty well, but nothing nothing massive. So. Yeah. yeah. But, well, I, I would love to do that one one time. I fished recently um, uh, uh, on the Niagara River, feeding you know below the falls. <clears throat> Uh, and we were smallmouth fishing and the guy I was fishing with, uh, hooked a sturgeon on, um, on a, I don't know if it's a drop shot or what, but, uh, we, he fought that thing for two and a half hours. It was like on 10 pound test. It took us eight miles to the mouth of Lake Ontario. And right as we were starting to see it come up, it broke off. I was like oh, that. Wow. I will never get that two hours of my life back. Oh, wow. I actually did a piece on sturgeon fishing for saltwater sportsmen a couple of years ago too. So yeah, uh, sturgeon are fun. I'll have to check that out. But uh, yeah, I might, you know, if we, next time we chat, I may have a different fish altogether, but <laughs> that one didn't pop. That's right. I think it's very fair that people come up with a new grail fish every time they have a different conversation. So, uh, you know, you, you got, you got the right to do that. James, it's always great to see you. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me on the Rodcast today. I really appreciate all the great stuff you're doing over at BASS. Thanks so much for joining me on the Rodcast today, man. Sid, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity. And uh, I look forward uh, to next time I see you uh, sharing a really nice uh, mid-level uh, bottle of bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, my listening crew, I think we need a break after that great conversation. And there's no break like a bourbon break. That moment in the Rodcast when we turn our attention to that other great pastime, drinking. And today, I'll be honest, I'm going to go lowbrow on the bourbon break. I'm going to keep things pedestrian and down on the lower shelves of the liquor shelves. Today, I want to take a drink or two from a bottle of Ezra Brooks Kentucky Straight Bourbon. Now, what I mean by this being a lower shelf bourbon is that this is an inexpensive bourbon that finds its home with the cheaper bourbons, which are usually placed lower on the shelves in a liquor store or a bar. The Ezra Brooks Kentucky Straight Bourbon finds its home with other bourbons that, that cost less than 25 bucks a bottle. In fact, I've seen the Ezra Brooks Kentucky Straight Bourbon list for as little as $11 a bottle. And after seeing that, was wondering why it gets boosted up to $25 a bottle in some places. No matter, it's still a very affordable bourbon for those nights when you just want to go for quantity rather than quality, but that's not to say that the Ezra Brooks is rot gut or that it has a chore to drink it because it's not that, it's not the case at all, it's actually okay. The Ezra Brooks is a 90 proof bourbon, but be alert that there is a 99 proof version out there too. In this bourbon break though, I'm looking strictly at the 90 proof. Now, we can assume that the Ezra Brooks is outsourced, and the general consensus is that it likely comes from the Heaven Hill Distillery, which distills whiskeys for several bottlers and distributors, 
including Seagram's, Hardwood Canadian Whiskey, Wilson Blend, Paul Jones Blended Whiskey, Mattingly and More Bourbon, Henry McKenna Bourbon, Vandermint Liquor, Burnett's Gin, 100 Pipers, Queen Anne, and something special, Scotch, Thompson's, and a whole bunch of others. This is a place that turns out a lot of liquor for a lot of places. Now, according to the Ezra Brooks web pages, quote, it starts with genuine Kentucky sour mash, then it's aged the old-fashioned way, charcoal filtered and bottled at an honest 90 proof. That's straight-up authentic bourbon. That's the Ezra Brooks web pages for you. They also tell us that Ezra Brooks has been filling glasses with genuine American bourbon since 1957. In 2018, it found a new home in Bardstown, a.k.a. the bourbon capital of the world, known as Lux Row Distillers, so named because of the district, the distinct row of trees on that historic property. The distillery boasts more than 18,000 square feet and a 43-foot custom copper still for Ezra Brooks and its bourbons in crime, Rebel Bourbon, David Nicholson, and Blood Oath. Hey, now the Ezra Brooks has a mash bill of 78% corn, 12% malted barley, and 10% rye, and that high corn value hits at a sweetness that certainly comes across in the palate. The eye of this bourbon is golden, like a honey tinted with caramel tones, leaning into a copperish color. The nose confirms the high corn content, but there's a rougher edge to the nose here that is best dominated by woody oakiness and charred and smoke. In fact, I think that the nose is best described as smoky and ashen, like charred wood. That smoky nose comes through in the flavor as well, and the wood seems to dominate the palate. In fact, one of the things I like about the Ezra Brooks is that for a low-end bourbon, this is a heavier, woody-tasting bourbon, more so than most lower-end bourbons, because most low-end bourbons don't get the longer times in the casks for aging, and they're rushed out to market. But the Ezra Brooks definitely picks up on the oak flavors from its barrels. The corn is here, too. I mean, how could it not be with that mash bill? And it comes across in a sweet caramel flavor. So the overall flavor of the Ezra Brooks is a blend of smoky sweet, almost like a good barbecue sauce. And since the Ezra Brooks is thinner and has a fuller palate, it can almost be described as a saucy bourbon. The finish maintains a spicier, oakier aspect of flavor, and the sweet seems to fall off in favor of a pepperier, spicier kind of finish. I suppose that if you're going to think of the Ezra Brooks as bottom shelf bourbon, which it is, it's one of the better ones out there. I think of Ezra Brooks in the same way that, you know, Anthony Michael Hall's character Ted in 16 Candles describes himself. I'm kind of like the leader, you know, kind of like the king of the dipshits. So if you need a decent bourbon and you don't want to spend the money for a decent bourbon, grab a bottle of Ezra Brooks Kentucky Straight Bourbon and enjoy it the same way you can enjoy a Chef Boyardee ravioli when no one's around. It's not something you want to boast you've been eating, but you enjoy it all the same. And those are my thoughts about Ezra Brooks Kentucky Straight Bourbon. Hey, and as a final note in my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how I have developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout out to Goombays in Satellite Beach, Florida, not to be confused with Goombays on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. 
Goombase has a great beach vibe, great food, and a worthy selection of whiskeys. They do Caribbean food, so plan to eat well when you stop by. So here's to the man who is the wisest and best. Here's to the man who with judgment is blessed. And here's to the man who's as smart as can be, for I'll always drink with the man who agrees with me. As always, if you've got comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventofishing.com. Now let's get back to the water. Okay, you watery scallywags. It's time for this week's Fishing Professor's Top 10 list. And this week, I want to count down my top 10 lures for vertical jigging in salt water. Now, I know that vertical jigging has also become popular for targeting bass and lake trout and walleye and other freshwater species. But today, I'm placing vertical jigging in the saltwater scenario. Now, vertical jigging didn't really start to become popular in the U.S. until about 15 years ago. But the strategy had already taken hold in Japan. Vertical jigging is often called Asian jigging, high-speed jigging, or butterfly jigging. And the reason some folks call it butterfly jigging is that Shimano brought its vertical jigging lures, the butterfly jig, which is a trademark name, to the U.S. So the lure name got adopted as a catch-all name, much in the same way we referred to band-aids for stick-on bandages or Xeroxing for copying. Interestingly, too, vertical jigging found a home on both East and West Coast applications in the U.S. Hey, I also get that there are high-speed vertical jigging techniques, as well as deep drop vertical jigging techniques and so on. But rather than getting into the technical specificities, I'm going to look at 10 of the lures that have been effective generically for vertical jigging. Also, ultimately with vertical jigs, the designs are not that different, but small variations in width, weight, such length, those things can affect the action of the lure. But the thing is, of all of these jigs on my list, they've all got great action. So I'm not going to distinguish one kind of flutter action on the fall versus another lure's action on the fall. So really, all of these on the list today are here because they inherently have great action. Now, the hardware and the variations of available lures and color and size and some design elements are worth noting. So a lot of the distinctions I'll make between these lures have to do with the hardware, the size, the design, the color, and those sorts of things more so than the action itself. So with that said, let's get to the lures. This week's leadoff batter in the number 10 position is Magbay Lures Hyperfly. And in many ways, this is a unique lure in the list. Because what the Mag Bay Hyperfly does is take the body of the traditional vertical jig and adds two wings to give the lure head the shape of a squid body. It then incorporates a rubber skirt over the two free hang hanging hooks to complete the look of the squid. They come in seven color patterns. They're 10-inch lures that weigh in at six and a half ounces. It's a really unique hybrid approach to vertical jigging, and it's one worth checking out. All right, but at number nine, Ocean Tackle International's Flare Jig takes almost a similar approach as Magbay's Hyperfly in that the head of this jig is molded in the shape akin to a squid head, and the dual assist hooks are hidden within a skirt that has different widths and lengths to really give the skirt a dynamic look. The head section features metallic paint with glow-in-the-dark features and red 3D eyes. They're available in 3.5 ounce, 5.3 ounce, 7 ounce, and 8.8 ounce versions and come in three color options. All right, at number eight, let's go with Savage Gear's Squish Deep Drop Erratic Fall Jig. 
This is an interesting jig in that it's designed not just to move up and down in the water when you jig it, but to move horizontally so that rather than moving up and down past the place in the water column where the fish are feeding, it moves sideways in the depth levels where the fish are feeding. It's a smart design for, for improving the action of the lure. It comes in four sizes, but three of those sizes fall between four and four and three quarters inches, so not a lot of discrepancy. The fourth size, the smaller size, is a three and three quarter inch size. Again, not that much different, but a little variation there. And they're available in eight color options. All right, at number seven, I really like the Magbay Lures Yo-Yo Zeal Vertical Jig. I like these jigs for working close to the bottom, for actually bouncing them off the bottom. They're a fairly narrow metal, metal jig that drops through the water quickly. It's a five-inch lure, so not as long as many of the other vertical jigs, and it weighs in at 90 grams or just over three ounces. All right, at number six, I've got Daiwa's Mr. Slow Jig. Now, this is a dense, compact lure, and one of the things I really like about it is that unlike most other vertical jigging lures that place both hooks at the back end of the lure, the Mr. Slow Jig places one hook forward and one aft. I also like the way the hooks are rigged using stiff fluorocarbon inside of a durable braid. The name Mr. Slow Jig is also a bit of a misnomer because this jig drops fast into the strike zone. They come in a 6.3 ounce and a 7.7 .7 ounce size, and they're available in four color patterns. All right, at the midway point, at number five, let's note Johnny Jig's Tuna Teaser. This is a great design for a vertical jig as it has three ridges in the design that move the water around the lure to create a fantastic erratic action. I also love the finish on these lures because they've got this kind of holographic foil finish with a spotted UV glow pattern that's really reflective. This is one of those versatile jigs that does great on the bottom, but it's also fantastic up higher in the water when targeting pelagics, like the name says, you know, they're for tuna. They are specifically great for targeting tuna, by the way. They come in three sizes, a 7.4 ounce, a 9.1, excuse me, a 9.7 ounce, and an 11.28 ounce version. All right, number four, I really like Nomad Designs Gypsy Jig. This is another vertical jig that, depending on the size you use, they're great down deep around the bottom or up high when targeting pelagics. The Gypsy Jig is designed as a backslide jig designed to be worked at slower to medium speeds. The smaller versions work great when you're just jiggling them near the bottom. They come fitted with super strong, super sharp BKK Jig Assist hooks. They come in seven sizes, ranging from a one and a half ounce up to a ten and a half ounce, and they're all listed as fast-sinking lures. They all come in about seven color options, and I have to say that these are some really dynamic color patterns, but I refuse to buy the one called Crimson Tide just because of the name, but the Mahi Mahi and the sardine patterns are gorgeous. All right, at number three, I want to point to JYG Jig Pro Fishing, that's JYG Pro Fishing, and their fantastic line of vertical jigs, in particular the Jig Wave Collection, which is a series of modified jig lures on which the front is designed with jig, JYG again's usual, usual use of UV reflective paint and hyperglow, but the back end has been modified to include a ripple wave effect in the water, and the colors are enhanced with what Jig calls hyperglow, which maintains better color at depth. These jigs are designed to be worked deep, like in 100 to 400 feet, and they're available in four sizes and five color options.
Okay, in the runner-up spot, coming in in second place, let's pay homage to the OG vertical jig and honor Shimano's butterfly flat fall jig. This is the jig that brought vertical jigging to the U.S. The flat fall uses a unique presentation style in which you let the lure free fall with the bail open, and when the strike comes, you close the bail to set the hook. The flat design of the lure lets the lure fall and flutter slow enough that it's not dropping quick to the bottom, but spending time in the water column on the way down. It also maintains a horizontal position as it flutters down like a fish swimming rather than a fish pointing up or down. Just a great design for a vertical jigging lure. It comes in six sizes pre-rigged and two sizes unrigged, and it comes in 10 color options. All right, so that's the top nine of the top 10, which means we've only got one left. But before the big reveal, let's get a quick recap of those magnificent first nine. At number 10, Magbay Lures Hyperfly. At number nine, Ocean Tackle International's Flare Jig. At eight, Savage Gear Squish 80-gram Deep Drop Erratic Fall Jig. At seven, Magbay Lures Yo-Yo Zeal Vertical Jig. At six, Daiwa's Mr. Slow Jig. At five, Johnny Jig's Tuna Teaser. At four, Nomad Design Gypsy Jig. At three, Jig JYG's Wave Collection. And number two, Shimano's Butterfly Flatfall. And that brings us to the fishing professor's favorite vertical jigging lure, and that's Daiwa's Saltiga SK. Now, there are four things I love about the Saltiga SK as a vertical jigging lure. First is that you really don't have to actually jig the lure. Let it fall to the bottom. It's got great flutter and spin on the drop. But then rather than jigging it, just reel it in. The design of the lure is such that it will naturally dance around, kicking and slapping on its way up. Second, I am really confident in the hardware of this lure. Fantastic hooks with a really reliable braided ties between the lure and the body and the hooks. Third, I appreciate the range of the sizes of the Saltiga SK comes in. There are 12 sizes available, ranging from 7 tenths of an ounce up to 10 and a half ounces. And fourth, I love the color options on these Saltiga SKs. There are eight color options and the eyes on these lures are wonderful. So yes, the Daiwa Saltiga SK gets my nod as my favorite lure for vertical jigging. So those are my top 10 lures for vertical jigging. As usual, if you want to let me know your thoughts about this week's top 10, if you have vertical jigging lures you think I should be looking at, or if you're a manufacturer and you want to alert me to your lure, just send me an email at sid at inventivefishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. That's it for the top 10 this week. Let's get back to casting. Well, my dear, dear listening crew, I think we have found our way to the end of another episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. But have no fear. I am happily at work on another episode, which you can hear next week. In the meantime, you can spend the week reliving this week's episode by playing it over and over and over again and sharing it with all of your friends, relatives, co-workers, acquaintances, random strangers, frenemies, crushes, and stalkers. Hey, I do want to thank James Hall for taking the time to talk with us today and for all of the great work he does at BASS. He's just a genuinely wonderful, nice guy, and I'm really grateful that he took the time to be on the Rodcast. I hope you enjoyed my comments about Ezra Brooks' Kentucky Straight Bourbon, and I hope that you found my top 10 list of my favorite vertical jigging lures to be of use to you. Now, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The fish finder is pinging. I say again, the fish finder is pinging.
And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week. And I hope you and all of the members of my listening crew will spread the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10s, Bourbon Breaks interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all of the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other great content. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!